0: You know, it's an adrenaline rush. <clears throat> it's a lot of, um, it's really exciting. Uh, when you when you're passionate about something, you, you uh, just can't wait. And and then you have those moments where it's a train wreck. There was a train wreck in the first service, okay. And thankfully, it's kind of like a back nine, it's like in golf. If I play bad those first nine, <clears throat> I try to make up for it on the second nine. So. Uh, I actually started the day with forgetting my iPad. Joseph thankfully had to drive home to my house and bring it to me, so I was looking at my phone trying to make sense of it. Uh, And then um, I I forgot a point, and then I realized I forgot a point, and I came back to it. And you you can't hide when you do that, right? It's like, where do you go to, to, to try to get away from that? So all that to say, I'm really hoping and counting on the fact that things are gonna go much better this service, okay? Before we jump into the study of Matthew, we've been studying, believe it or not, we started this Matthew study in uh, late September 2020. We've taken a few breaks. Last week, we finished a series, a three-week series on Mastermind that I I was really encouraged. Many of you said, wow, that really helped me uh, in in terms of how to win the battle in my mind. And and it's been very helpful for me as well, too, for sure. But um, today is, do we know what today is? Do you want to guess what today is? Palm Sunday, that's right, which really interesting because uh, the Scripture passage we're going to be looking at today is actually the week after Palm Sunday, um, and we're going to have at the end of the service a little celebration of Palm Sunday when our kids come in and they wave the palm fronds uh, in front of us to remind us that Palm Sunday was the day that Jesus came in to Jerusalem for the final week of his life, and he was being recognized as the king. Now, it was a king they didn't understand. It was a king they thought was going to be a military leader that there was going to be some, okay, that's my ring. Someone just apparently walked to my front door. I now put it on silent. <laughs> now I'm scared. All right, this might, <laughs> this might not be going the way that I hope it's going to go. But, okay. You know, thank you. Thank you, darling. God loves to just say, dude, hold on to your plans loosely. I can really mess with you, right? That's kind of how it happens. Um, for moms and dads in the room. Before I get to Jesus writing in to Jerusalem, April 23rd is parent night out. We just There's so much going on, and, and it can get all lost in there. But we know if you have kids between 4 and 12 and you need a break, bring them up here. They're going to have a blast up here. You go out from 5 to 7 and have a blast. You can find more information on our website for that. But I just, that didn't make it in, in the announcements, and so there you have it. Moms and dads, April 23rd, parent night out. Okay? Back to Matthew. So Jesus comes in. They're they're waving their palm fronds. They're um, they're saying they're shouting Hosanna, which is a a statement of adoration, and, and they're saying this is the guy, right? And he's riding in on a donkey. <laughs> I mean, think about it. If you if you like you know if you went all in, this is our king. This is the guy who's going to restore Israel to be the, the nation of prominence. This is the guy who's going to break us from the Roman oppression that you know we're currently occupied. And you hear this. Hee-yah! As he's coming down, the road, you're like, man, I hope there's something better than this, right? Um, Jesus' kingship uh, uh, initially was greatly misunderstood, and this, the, the trial that we're going to look at this morning will we'll kind of reflect that. But what I'd like you to do is get your Bibles open. We're going to look in our table of contents. We have an Old Testament and New Testament table of contents. I want you to look for the book of Matthew. It's the first book of your New Testament, and you'll be at page, uh, chapter one. I'd like you to turn to chapter 26. We're going to look at chapters 26 and 27, which, are, which is the trial of Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, there were two trials. There was this Jewish trial, and then there was the Roman trial. And we think about 2021 in our world, in our day, there was quite a few trials, if you will, that were kind of very prominent. Um, they were uh, Derek Chauvin. Okay, there, there's one. Uh, Jesse Smollett, um, Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, now these these may not rise to the level of O.J. Simpson. Um, I'm thinking of the lady of uh, Ther- Theranos. Thermos. Uh, uh, what's her name? Holmes. Holmes. Elizabeth Holmes. Thank you, Dr. Bernard. Appreciate that. So, th- so there's these. Pretty prominent trials. And then what you have is you have your legal experts and analysts and what they're doing, whether it's on a TV show or a podcast, they're, they're analyzing, they're making observations about these trials. And it can be very, very fascinating. Well, this morning, I really want us to look kind of at the, the mother of all trials. And it's the, it's the trial of Jesus. And I'd like to do the same. I kind of want to draw four observations, but I, I don't want to do it just for our, our legal curiosity. I really want to do it because I believe that it has an impact in all of our lives, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. I believe there's an impact to understanding um, Christ and how he was tried and and what all went on there. And so I'm going to actually speak to four specific observations from these trials. But before I do that, I'm going to pray and ask for God's blessing over this time of teaching. Would Would you join me, please? Father, thank you for all that you are to us and how you have given us your very word that we might know who you are and who we are and how we are to live. I pray, Lord, as we look at Jesus' trial, your Son, our Savior. God, I pray that you would bless me in a way that I could share these four observations that would be meaningful and impactful in all of our lives. Father, if there's anything that comes from me and not from you, I pray it's not heard or received or even understood. But God, I pray your truth would sear our minds and hearts, that we would be different because of it, and we would glorify and honor you as we live it out. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I asked you to turn to chapter 26, 27. I'm actually going to turn to chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. This is the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem. Starting with verse 4, it says, This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, look, you're king. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. Tell daughter, uh, or... yeah. Israel. Tell daughter uh, Zion, look, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Then they laid their robes on them and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their robes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. The Son of David is an expression. It's a messianic expression, meaning it's about Jesus as Messiah, the holy, anointed, divine one who was prophesied, who was foretold in the Old Testament, was going to come. And people are recognizing that. And they're, they're shouting Hosanna, these praises, these shouts of adoration but in their mind, they don't really understand the king that Jesus is. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So because today is Palm Sunday, I wanted to start with the description of Palm Sunday. And as they were coming, people were laying their robes down. They were waving the palm fronds and they were shouting Hosanna, recognizing that, that Jesus, the king, was coming into Jerusalem, presumably to establish his rule and reign politically, militarily uh, speaking. But he comes to do nothing like that. So now let's turn to chapter 26, 27. We make about a week's worth from the time that he came in to to where we are in chapter 26 and 27. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through these two trials briefly to my very best ability. And then I'm going to draw the four observations afterwards. Okay, But let's understand the trial. Again, remember, there are two trials. There is the trial in which Jesus is brought before the high priest. That's Caiaphas. Israel was a theocracy. And so the high priest was the top dog. And the chief priests and elders of religious leaders who really were upset with Jesus because of what he was saying and what he was doing, they, they have this sham court, if you will, and they bring charges against Jesus that he is uh, blasphemous. Uh, This is actually a law in the Old Testament that there is such a thing as blasphemy. One who comes equating themselves to be God. One who comes as if they are are God or or divine in who they are. And and clearly up to this point, uh, there was no one like that. There was no one at all like that. Jesus certainly wasn't behaving like that. He was blowing the minds of the religious leaders. And so they have this sham court in which they come to Caiaphas at night, no less, which is really not when they're supposed to meet. And then from there, they then take Jesus over to uh, Pilate, who's the Roman governor. Roman is the oppressor. And they've delegated out responsibilities. And Pilate is the one who has governance over Judea, which includes Jerusalem. And so he is the one they go to for the Roman trial. So two trials. Let's look at the first one, which is the Jewish one. If you'll be chapter 26, verse 55. It says, At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? He's in the garden of Gethsemane. They have come to arrest him. Judas has just betrayed him. And they, they apparently are all jacked up. They're all hopped up. And he's like going, hey, do you, you know, do you really think I'm a criminal? Have you really come to capture me? He goes, every day I used to sit teaching in the temple complex and you didn't arrest me. But all this has happened so that the, prophet, that the prophetic scriptures would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. They were scared. I, I'd like to read, and we'll occasionally uh, throughout this morning, read to you from the book of John as well. And I, I like the details that are there. You, know, you have to look at all four of the first four books of the New Testament to really understand the full uh, significance of this trial. And I'm going to be w- going between Matthew and John. But let me read to you from John chapter. 18, verses 20 through 23. This kind of dives in a little bit more to where Jesus was coming from. He says, I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple complex where all the Jews congregate and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he said these things, one of the temple police standing by slapped Jesus saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? So just, I want you to see what is happening, what is going on. Now let's pick it back up with Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. Meanwhile, Peter was following him at a distance, Right to the high priest's courtyard, he went in and was sitting with the temple police to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is like the Jewish uh, uh, Supreme Court of the day, if I, if I can say it that way. The chief priests and the whole Supreme, or excuse me, and the Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. So they're pushing these people up, saying, testify, testify so we can get this guy, and nothing's sticking. Nothing is substantial enough to really be used in a this sham trial. But they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two who came forward stated, This man said, I can demolish God's sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. This is a reference to when Jesus went into the temple and he cleaned house. Because there was all kinds of... Um, worldly things going on. The money changers were, were uh, gouging people. There was not the real worship uh, of God. And, and the holiness of the sacred place was anything but. And so Jesus turns over tables. He, he chases out people. And the, the religious leaders ask him, by what authority do you do this? And he answers them. He says, destroy this temple. And of course, He's, it's a, a play on what they're seeing a little bit. They're thinking that the, the structure. He's thinking himself because he's greater than the temple. He, he's the manifestation, the personal uh, human manifestation of the presence of God in him, not in the temple. And he says, "And I will build it in three, rebuild it in three days," which is a reference to his resurrection. They didn't understand that, but that was the answer that he gave them. So they come and they, they kind of couch it a little bit differently, as if he's going to demolish the, the the temple itself verse 62, the high priest then stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Then the high priest said to him, by the living God, I place you under oath. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. So the high priest asks him something that a Jew would ask. He asks about the Messiah. You're going to see it's different when he's in the Roman court. He's saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the one who is divine, who who will come and restore the nation of Israel as the Old Testament prophets foretold the one would come? And Jesus in verse 64 says, you have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you in the future, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power, which is God, and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus' response to Caiaphas is, it is as you describe it, although he, what he means is you're kind of right. But, but the, the Caiaphas is thinking kind of with this anti-Roman uh, sentiment and this, this nationalistic kind of uh, sense that, that the nation of Israel was going to be restored and prominent, but that's not what Jesus was going to do. And then Jesus quotes Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which is an Old Testament prophet. Most Jews would understand that he was quoting a messianic In other words, this was a a, a verse or these were verses that were speaking of that anointed one to come. And believe it or not, when you go back to when you look at Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14, it describes this anointed one coming back to God. And and most likely what that is, that is a reference to what happens in Acts chapter one when Jesus ascends and he goes back up to be with God. And so Daniel prophesied, foretold what was gonna happen, that Jesus having accomplished everything he needed to accomplish here, now goes back up to his rightful place in heaven, sits at the right hand of God to judge all who have been created. But Jesus turns it just a little bit and you'll see the response of the priest when he does. He says, you'll see the Son of Man. That was the way Jesus referred to himself. That was the messianic way. Most people refer to him as the Son of God. He referred to himself as the Son of Man, pointing back to Daniel chapter 7. I'm the anointed one. But notice the direction of which he comes. At the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven, coming back. They'll see him. He's saying, I'm coming back to judge you as the anointed one, as the divine one. How does the High priest responded to that, verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he is blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? Look now, you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? In John In the interaction between these chief priests, these religious leaders, and Pilate, in John chapter 19, verse 7, they say to Pilate, we have a law. The Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he must die because he made himself the son of God. So what we have to understand is because Israel was occupied, they could not hold a trial and they could not issue a capital sentence of death. Only Rome could do that. And so they knew that they would have to go to Rome eventually. But, they, but what was the charge in order to get Jesus to go to Rome was blasphemy. That was the charge in the Jewish court. Blasphemy, the idea that, that Jesus was not only, did he say he was God, not only did he equate himself with God, and that he received worship from people, that he forgave people's sins... But he recognized as the son of man, I'm the one who's coming back. I'm the one who's going to judge you. And that was just, that was too much. That's, that's crazy talk. That's blasphemy. And so that becomes the charge in the Jewish court. And we see the response, the way that the high priest um, reacts. And we see the way that the others, when they spit upon him and beat him and mocked him. So that is... Jewish court. Now, let's go to the Roman court, chapter 27, turn a page or two, Matthew chapter 27. We'll pick it up with verse one. It says, when daybreak came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. So what we just read by way of the Jewish trial was at night. It was illegal, they weren't supposed to do it then. But they just wanted to get this thing done quickly. So then what they do the next morning is they kind of rubber stamp what they did. And and they they, they say, all right, what we did last night, let's do it today so that when we stand before the Roman um, court, we can actually say, yes, we adjudicated that this morning. In verse two, after tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate the governor. Let's go to skip over to chapter or same chapter, verse 11, now he faces the governor. So the governor is the one who was responsible for the area of Judea uh, of which Jerusalem was a part. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor now, notice the question that the governor asks him. Remember, the, the question that Caiaphas asked him says, are you the Messiah? Very Jewish question. But the Roman governor, Pilate, asks him, are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Why would he ask it that way? Because most likely what happened is, again, the Jews knew we, we cannot and will not be able to get Jesus killed on mere blasphemy alone. It was not sufficient enough before a Roman court for one to be killed. So what they did is they came up with the, an, another, another charge, and it was the charge of sedition. It was the idea that Jesus was a part of an uprising against the local government, against the current government. And so they probably in all likelihood came and they said, we're bringing before you one who calls himself the king of the Jews. Now, Now you get Rome's attention. Wait, wait, a king? Now they're thinking nationalistically, now now they're thinking politically, now they're they're thinking militarily maybe, and the Jews are doing everything they can to draw the attention of Rome to the fact that they are the ones that can issue a capital punishment, the likes of which they are going after. So there are your, your charges in the Jewish court and in the Roman court. Now, let's keep going. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus answered, you have said it. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? But he didn't answer him on even one charge, so the governor was greatly amazed. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. This is the Passover festival. This is when they celebrated the nation uh, nation of Israel being freed out of Egypt and going back into the motherland. And, And most likely, this was also a way that Pilate could kind of appease the people so they wouldn't be in an uprising, so everything would be nice and calm and quiet, so word wouldn't get back to Rome that Pilate couldn't handle it. And so he offers this custom of releasing a prisoner during the celebration. And that's what he's doing here. Verse 16, at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Messiah? For he knew they had handed him over because of envy. Notice Pilate knows that he cannot find anything wrong with Jesus. There is no true charge upon which Jesus is guilty. He sees behind, he sees the envy, he sees the fear, he sees the the notoriety and popularity of one that was not good for the religious establishment. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, which of the two of you want me to release? Do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, what should I do then with Jesus who is called Messiah? They all answered, crucify him. Then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting, crucify him all the more. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere but that a riot was starting, instead he took some water washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified, to be flogged, is to be tied to a pole, to have your back exposed, and to be struck with a whip that has in the whip itself, the, the threads, it has sharp objects to tear the flesh away. And the idea behind a flogging in Roman punishment was that you would kill the person before you crucified them, but if, you had, if they lived through that and you crucified them, they would not be on the cross very long. And this, this is what Jesus endured. This is what he did without defending himself. To the amazement of Pilate maybe, and I hope to the amazement of ourselves. So they hand him over to the soldiers. Verse 27, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into headquarters and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet military robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a reed. In other words, the this, this stick kind of like acting like a scepter in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they spit on him, took the reed, and kept hitting him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of, his, of the robe, put his clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Let me fill in a few holes. Let me go back to John. Let me read to you from John chapter 19 or verse 18, 36 and 37. This is Jesus responding to Pilate. He says, My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. He's explaining his his posture and his response or the lack of response. Verse 37, he says, you're a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I am a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I have come into this world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then one last, when you, you see Pilate washing his hands, right? I, I, I'm, I'm freeing myself of this. You, you take care of him. And, and what do they do? They, they shout even louder, crucify him. And then they put pressure on Pilate and they say, you don't want this getting back to Rome. And in all likelihood, what happens is Pilate sends what he, what he knows is an innocent man to be crucified out of fear, not out of belief that he was Guilty, but out of fear of what might happen to him. And we see this uh, kind of, you can imagine Pilate maybe agonizing a little bit because in John chapter 19, verse 4, it says, Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing bringing him outside to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. In verse 6, When the chief priests and the temple police saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, for I find no grounds for charging him. And then in verse 12, says, from that moment, Pilate made every effort to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Okay. There's the trial, the Jewish trial, and there's the Roman trial. Now, let me draw the four observations. I've shared with you the charges. We have the charges of blasphemy, claiming to be equal with God, claiming to be that divine anointed son of man who's going to come and judge and then sedition, the king, the one who's going to start this uprising that's going to challenge the Roman Empire. But let's talk about the four observations. The first observation that I want to call your attention to is you heard Jesus did not defend himself. I mean, he, he could have defended himself intellectually. He, he could have defended himself physically in the protection that he could have summoned in a moment, but he didn't. Because Jesus came not to defend, but he came to die. And that's something we have to remember and be mindful of. I mean, maybe some of you in here that are kind of checking out Christianity and trying to understand what it's all about. You might think from watching others or hearing others that Jesus really what Jesus is. Jesus is just this great teacher. And he teaches us how we are to live so that we then go out and live in a way that God notices how we're living and goes, well done. You're forgiven. We're good. We're right. Or maybe Jesus is a model. He's an example that we're to emulate and follow. And when we do to the very best of our ability, God looks at us and he he judges how well we did it. But That's not what Jesus is. Jesus didn't come merely as a teacher. He didn't come merely as an example or a model. He came as a savior. Jesus came and lived a life we couldn't live perfectly. And then he died a substitutionary death where God's judgment for the sin of all humanity gets drilled down on him and he bears it all. And he dies because that's what he came for. Remember, he says, I was born for this, he said. I was born for this. This is the reason for which I came. And then God raises him three days later. And that, that's God's way of saying, I'm satisfied. My holiness is satisfied. This is the guy. Put your faith and trust in him. And so from this, this first observation, we've we got to understand that, that Jesus came for one reason, and it was to die for us and for our brokenness. We're all broken. We've all got sins, right? We're all a mess. I mean, you've heard me say this before. Isn't it nice that we don't have this teleprompter on our forehead that says everything we're thinking at every moment, right? I mean, we would never leave the house, right? We'd wear a hat or something. We'd be afraid. And God knows all of that, right? He knows every bit of that. And he seeks in relationship with us through Christ to be reconciled. And Jesus says, this is the reason for which I came. He goes, I've come to testify to the truth. What's the truth? We need a savior. We don't need a model. We don't need a teacher. We need a flat-out savior. And Jesus comes to testify and live his life out. You know, we, some people think that Jesus is this wimpy, milk toast guy, right? I'm, I'm just asking you, how much strength did it take for him not to defend himself? How much strength did it take for him to be spat upon? to be mocked, to be beaten. I just, I think we've got to feel that. We've got to let that kind of settle a little, little bit. And Jesus said, this is, this is the reason for which I was born. This is why I've come, right? So I think a question for us is, do you know, why, why are you here? Why were you born? Why did, why did you come onto the scene, right? Why did I? I mean, Jesus knew why he came. And to the followers of Christ in this room, we have to remember that Jesus, knowing why he came, said this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. My friends, to those of you who, who, who are following Jesus or who are contemplating following Jesus, understand that it is, is, is a life that we follow that is amazing the, 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 the meaning and purpose and, and the, the 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 shame and guilt that are just stripped away and 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 um, love and contentment and peace infused into you it is unbelievable but it's not easy and, and we've got to remember, we're bombarded with the messages all the time about seeking comfort and convenience. But my friends, to follow Jesus, to be in relationship with God through Jesus, we cannot follow him and remain comfortable. We just can't. It is impossible. They are mutually exclusive. There is an uncomfortableness to following Jesus. Observation number two. We see the treatment of Christ. And, and I, I, when, you re, when I read that, it's hard to read that. It's hard to see how he was treated. It's hard to believe that someone um, could, could hate him in such a way, could feel about him in such a way that they would spit upon him. A, a, a tremendous insult in that culture to, to put that crown of thorns and stomp it on his forehead and gouge his forehead to, to beat him and then to crucify him. And here's the question. Why would God choose that plan? If God knew that we need to be saved and we need to save it, then why that plan? Why do we have to be mindful of and see someone like Christ who is innocent, who is perfect, be treated that way? And then why do we have to try to comprehend in our mind the horrific death on a cross? Why God that way? I've thought about this a lot. I, I think about it a lot. Uh, and the best I can give you, and I've, I've said this before, is that, God wants to communicate two things to us in that. In the way that Jesus was treated, in in the way that, that he suffered, in the reason that he needed to die, was that God wanted to make a statement, and that is this. I hate sin. I don't dislike it. I don't think it's cute. I hate it. It is an offense to me. And I want you to understand that. And I want you to see it. And I want it to be graphic because it's graphic to me. I I think God wants us to really understand how much the Bible says that he wants us to mortify sin, to kill it, not nurse it along, not hide it for a while, not put it on the shelf for a little time. He wants it dead in your life and in my life simultaneously he wants us to see that we are so loved that he would give up his son and that Jesus would voluntarily give of his life, not defend himself, but surrender his life so that he could absorb the judgment and the hatred and the anger of sin that God has because he loves immeasurably the sinner. That's what he wants us to understand. That's what he wants us to see. He wants us to realize from this how he carries himself, all that's going on, is that God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. The irony of verse uh, 20, in, in, uh, 27, verse 25, when they said, His blood be on us and our children. How foretelling is that? It was. It is. It's powerful. Observation number three Pilate. Do you see what he's doing? Pilate is trying to be neutral here. He's asking him, why do you keep bringing up these charges? I don't see anything wrong with him, right? He gives him a chance to to, to spring Jesus with this uh, custom that they do at Passover, but they spring Barabbas. He washes his hands and says, I got nothing to do with it. Nothing. Zip, it's on you. Tries to be neutral, but my friends, Jesus will not. Let anybody be neutral about him. He just won't. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 19, Pilate says to, to Jesus, Hey, you know, um, I can spring you here. Um, and, and, and on this verse 9 of chapter 19 in John, he says, He went back to the headquarters and asked Jesus, what, Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, you're not talking to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it had not been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. So first thing he says, he says, you're not ultimately responsible for my life, my friend. My heavenly father is. So we have to understand, God sent Jesus to die, okay? But then he says to Pilate, he says, but you're not committing the greater sin, which means that Pilate is committing a sin. What's that sin? He's sending an innocent man to die. But the greater sin is that his people, Jesus' people, they are rejecting him. They have been told he was coming. They should recognize him. And yet they send him to die. You see, you can't be neutral with Jesus, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's, there's no neutrality there. It's one or the other. And it's either he's it or he's not. Uh, he says, if you are not for me, he goes, then you're against me. In other words, there's no way you can got to go, well, Jesus is was really compassionate person. He's like, he was a great leader. He was a wonderful teacher. No. You're either for him as Savior, Captain King, and CEO of your life, or you're against him. You are an enemy of his. We cannot be neutral before Jesus. And I and I I hope and pray for the person here who's not a follower of Jesus is that you come to understand that part because Jesus is the linchpin of Christianity. And how you understand him, and he will not let you understand him as merely being nice, as merely being loving, as merely being wise, as merely being compassionate. He is either Captain King and CEO. He is Messiah. He is your Savior, or he's not. Fourth observation. Jesus, I read it before, he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. I think we take the observation from here clearly. Jesus The kingdom that he speaks of is not of this world, nor should it be of those who follow him. And this goes back to last week. Remember the the, uh, mastermind? We talked about how important it was that most of our problems, most of our pains, most of our headaches and heartaches are because we're thinking about here. Our desires and our affections uh, uh, and our dreams are earthbound. But we have been created for There, the new kingdom, when Jesus comes back, eternity there, not here. And if we can live for there, then then what's here will not bother us as much. And clearly Jesus was living not for here, but he was looking there and he knew what was coming. He knew what what stood to be gained. And he endured everything for that, for you and for me. And he calls followers of Jesus to live for the same, from the same perspective, the kingdom of God that is going to come. We're bombarded with messages to live for here, right? It's such a challenge not to, but to live for the kingdom it means that we obey King Jesus and everything he says. We, we start to obey and live it out. That's how we live with the kingdom that's coming in mind. We take risks, which the Bible would call faith, to glorify and honor God. We do that by standing up for justice, when it's not popular. Um, by sharing our faith story with other people, we tell them not how to live, we just tell them how we found life in Christ. We do our part to reconcile difficult relationships. We do our part, we can't do it all, but we do our part. We're, we're, we're vulnerable and we go to people and we say, trust of people, I have an addiction, I'm struggling, I need help. That's how we live for the kingdom that's coming because you have within you the ability and Christ can give you through the spirit of God the power to overcome the addiction. We live simply here so that we can give of our time and our treasure and our talents for the kingdom of God because it's broken in through Jesus, but it will fully come and be consummated upon his return. That's what we do to live for there. That's what we do. And when we're living for there, my friends, worry and anxiety and doubt and fear just will not get into you like it can when when you're earthbound and when I'm earthbound. It just... Won't happen that way. So, those are your four observations that I I want you just to think about. Um, Do you hate sin like God hates sin? Do I hate sin like God hates sin? Do you know why you're here? Why why you were born? What your purpose is? Are are you living for the kingdom? Can you start living for the kingdom? Just see how that might affect you for today these are the things that i want us to just to kind of reflect on okay my challenge this week would be to celebrate everything that this week is about and Good Friday will help us there. Today's Palm Sunday. Good Friday's coming Friday, right? We're gonna have a Good Friday experience. Please come back. We're gonna have a two-hour kind of like open house where we're gonna have stations and and places that you can go and just really reflect on the, the final week of Jesus's life and really in preparation for the celebration that Jesus comes back from the dead and that changes everything. So I invite you to come back to Good Friday and the Good Friday experience. And then secondly is I invite you to invite somebody to come on Sunday to Easter. Step out, take a risk with your mind on what is to come. Yeah, could they say no? Could they maybe look at you like, really? Yeah, that might happen. I can tell you what, that hurts a whole lot less than, than what it could be and what it is in other places with our Christian brothers and sisters. But just think about that, be challenged by that that we can have just a wonderful celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Captain and King Jesus, okay? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your patience and mercy with us, Lord. I pray your blessing over this day, this time of teaching. God, I I especially pray as we get to celebrate baptism here in just a moment, Lord God, um, this is about you. There is an audience of one, and I pray that we'll be mindful of that and that you have been pleased with our time, with our thoughts, with our prayers, and with the words spoken, Lord, and I pray this in Jesus' name.